That's Judges chapter 2, verse 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by the groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Libo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And the daughters they took to themselves for wives and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Wishathahim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Wishathahim eight years, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Wishathahim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Wishathahim, so the land had rest. 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. So I got to fix this. Andrew's like seven foot, whatever he is. Um, if you're just joining us over the past few weeks, 
We've been tracking through the book of Judges. Probably one of the darkest books in the Bible, where God's people go from bad to worse. Last week, we began to feel the birth pains of this. Uh, when the nation of Israel, um, it's not so much that they just put up with idolatry that was around them. It's not that they just tolerated it. They willfully plunged into it themselves. And so the Lord says, okay, all right, because you did that, guess what? I'm not going to drive out these nations. Remember Joshua? Remember his whole plan? Well, guess what? These nations, they're going to be around you now. North, south, east, and west, you are going to be surrounded by enemies. And I'm doing this to test you. I'm doing this to test you to see if you'll trust me and depend on me. I'm not sure if you have ever sat near the bedside of someone that is dying. It's a very sobering experience. It's even more heavy when that person looks you in the eye and sort of they're at their, their dying breath, so to speak, says, can you please make sure that this happens? Joshua as he took the Israelites into the promised land, his dying deathbed wish is this. It's going to come up here on the screen. He said, Be careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord, your God, has given you. That would be pretty, if, if someone said that to you, particularly if they were a spiritual mentor in your life, that would be pretty full on, right? That you'd, you'd, you'd carry that, you'd feel that. And yet, when we get to Judges chapter three, look what happens. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And notice, and they took, notice, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons. And they served their gods. Well, there you have it. They live among the Canaanites. They intermarry with the Canaanites. And then eventually, they serve their gods. Now the stage is set for the drama of judges to unfold. Now we see the drama of judges begin. So sit back, hold on to your seat. Might want to close your eyes or if you've ever watched a movie and you feel like you shouldn't be watching it and you're kind of watching it like this. Here we have the book of Judges. Speaking of drama and theater, uh, do you remember those days when we could go to Laycock Theater and, and watch drama and theater? Or maybe you've had the privilege of going down to Sydney and going to an opera. If you've ever had the experience to go to one of these events, when you enter one of these theaters, typically someone will hand you a program, right? Or sometimes you have to buy the program. But 
someone will hand you a program, and when you get the program, and once you head to your seat and, and you open up the program, you can familiarize yourself, you can orient yourself with what's going to happen in either the opera or the play or whatever it might be. And, you know, you want to know how many acts there are, what it's about, who's playing which part. Today I want you to imagine our passage in Judges like a program for a drama. You've got the plot, the characters, and the grand finale. The plot, the characters, and the finale. The plot being Israel's sin and God's reaction to it. That's something, that's a plot that's going to just keep, keep being repeated. But it's important that we look at it. The characters, there's two of them. We have a wicked king and we have an ideal judge. And then finally, we'll get a sneak peek of the grand finale. The plot the characters, the grand finale. That's our program for this morning's drama in Judges. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open eyes. Lord, as we sit watching, interacting now in our hearts, we pray that you would, your spirit would move. Lord, help us to focus with so many distractions and so many things to be anxious about around us. We pray that, Lord, you would speak and your servants would be listening. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so what's, what's as we pull out our program, so to speak, what's the plot? What's the plot? The plot is laid out near the end of chapter two. Andrew just read it for us. Here we see a pattern. Israel goes off the rails. The Lord gives them into the hands of an enemy. Then they cry out to God. So he raises up a deliverer who defeats the enemy. As a result, the land has peace for a number of years until the judge dies and history repeats itself. If you look up here on the screen, you'll see this vicious cycle. At the top of the diagram, they go off the rails then they're oppressed. Then they groan or cry out to God. And in response, he delivers them. Round and round we go. This is the repeated plot. It's judges in a nutshell. If you look at chapter 2, go there quickly with me. Chapter 2, verse 18, you can see this pattern for yourself. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. Now, it's interesting. Did you catch the plot there? Um, if you remember that diagram, maybe, you, maybe you're not a visual person. Maybe you're more of a word person. Well, and you don't really like the diagram. Let me give you four R's to sort of think of this plot. Here, here we go. You have rebellion. That's what we see just happened, right? You have retribution, repentance, 
and rescue. Rebellion, retribution, repentance, you can put that in quotations though, and rescue. Whatever sticks for you though, that's the plot. I'm curious if you've ever had a family member or a friend or someone you know, someone that's close to you, addicted to drugs or alcohol or some immoral behavior that they're just addicted to. It's, it's really sad. It, it seems that no matter what happens, no matter what kind of trouble they can run into even with the law, they just keep falling back into it. Have you, have you noticed that? It's like a, a dog returning to its vomit. According to New South Wales crime statistics, I just looked this up yesterday, New South Wales, it's actually more in the ACT, but in New South Wales, 42% of people released from prison end up back in prison in less than just one year. 42% of people, nearly half the people that get out of prison, one year later, they're coming right back. There's even a technical word for this phenomenon. It's called recidivism. Recidivism. It's when a person repeats or relapses into a type of criminal behavior even after they've experienced negative consequences because of this behavior. Israel's experience in Judges, I think, is like this. It's spiritual recidivism. Do you ever wonder why God doesn't cure us from sin the moment we become Christians? Have you ever thought about that? I've met people that the day they become saved, I've met people like this, they, they seem that for whatever reason, it, like a switch turns on, boom, and whatever addiction they had, gone. I've met other people, though, that they continue to struggle against the same temptations for years, way on into their later years of life. Why does God allow that to happen? Because we need to learn to rely on his grace. You, you're not saved because you became morally perfect. You are saved as a gift of grace. And God will allow you to wrestle with these things so that you will grow ever more dependent upon his grace. The author of Amazing Grace, when he was in his late 80s, you know, some 300 years ago, wrote to a friend. In his letter to a friend, he says, you know, I thought, I'm paraphrasing now, I thought I would be so much further along than I, than I am. And, you know, I feel like I've actually, it's sort of not spiritual progress, it's more spiritual regress. And that's the man who pinned amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. You see, Paul, the apostle, had a thorn in his flesh, right? To keep him from boasting. You know, if we were to sort of just get instantly zapped with perfection, knowing our sinful tendencies, I think we'd fall into the worst of sins, and that's probably pride. We'd be dripping, you know, spiritual check-me-out sauce. I don't know what we'd be dripping, and, and, and we'd think we're pretty awesome. And as it is, I don't know about you, Things that I feel that sometimes I've sins that are behind me, I have a propensity almost to kind of almost self-righteously pity people that are still stuck in that rut. 
and kind of go, come on. Maybe, though, you're not in that boat. Maybe this pandemic, you've actually found yourself falling, reverting back into old sins. Some of those demons have sort of resurfaced in your life, so to speak. Hey, listen, you know what's amazing? God, as, as we s- look here in, in, the, in Judges, God kept these enemies surrounding them. Why? So that they could learn war, meaning they could depend on his grace to continue to conquer the land, not just kick back and relax. Look, temptation and sin is real. And it, 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 we have to understand that you're n- this side of heaven We're never going to walk perfectly. We're always going to fight and wrestle against sin. And so we can continue to point and say, God's grace is good. But it's a reality that this battle that we fight, isn't it? Let me show you, if you come with me to Judges 3, check out this plot. Look at this plot. It's, remember, I, I told you it's this cycle, it's this pattern It'll be pretty clear when you read 3.7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There you go. They go off the rails, right? And they serve these fertility gods. We learned about them last week, right? Baal, Ashroth. But notice in verse 8, they become oppressed because of that, right? Verse 8, therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia. Okay, so then what happens now? Well, verse 9, they whinge about it, right? They cry out. Look at verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up, and here we go, a deliverer. There's the cycle. You see it? The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And then notice what he does. He rescues them. You see? The Spirit of the Lord in verse 10 was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and he prevailed over Cushan Rishathayim. And then what happens? The land has peace for 40 years, but look at verse 12. And the people of Israel, after Othniel dies, what happens? Again, did evil. Here we go, in the sight of the Lord. Here we go, just that roundabout of sin. There's our plot. And now, if you have your program with you, the curtain rises, and we're presented with two characters standing on center stage. Two characters. There is a bad guy who is a wicked king, and there is a good guy who is a deliverer. First, the wicked king. We don't know much about this bloke, other than his name is super difficult to pronounce, Kushan Rishathayim. I mean, imagine seeing that on the back of a soccer jersey, right? It's interesting, his name, though, feels sort of thrust in our face. Andrew and I were just talking about this, because when I just saw him, I said, how are you going to go pronouncing that name? But it's interesting, notice just in this small little section, his name is mentioned four times. You see that? Uh, just in these couple of verses. So that's interesting, but you also have to pause here when you discover what his name means. When translated, it reads 
double wickedness. Double wicked. Doubly wicked, Kushan. I doubt his parents gave him that name. Maybe some of you feel that way about your teenage kids at the moment, but this is not a name given to him by his parents. It's more likely a notorious title, like Ivan the Terrible or Bloody Mary. Uh, these names were coined by people who suffered under them, right? It's likely the case with Kushan Rishathayim because he traveled a considerable distance. Notice where he comes from, Mesopotamia. This, this dude came from way out west, so to speak, and he comes to oppress, harass, rape, pillage, and plunder Israel for eight years. Eight long years, God's people suffered a great, great deal at the hands of this man. But they're not simply victims of circumstance. It's important to know that. Do you know that? Israel's not simply victims of circumstance. They are the objects of God's just punishment. The Lord used this tyrant as a rod to discipline Israel. Again, if you come to verse 7, verse 7 says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. Now the word forget, it doesn't mean that they became absent-minded, right? Kind of like when you forget your, on a cold day, you forget your jumper. Or maybe, you know, you, you forgot where you're, you're, you left your, your car keys. No, to forget means to neglect God's covenant demands. To have an attitude of, of self-sufficiency, which is wicked. And they turn, again, it's not that we all worship something. So they actually turn from the Lord, forget him, turn from his ways, and worship these other false fertility gods, which is wicked. And so God says, okay, you want to play that game? Because you're wicked, I'll hand you over to someone, another fellow, who's doubly wicked. See how that works? And because of this predicament, Israel, what do they do? They whinge about it. It doesn't say that they're sorrowful over their sin. Did you catch that? It doesn't say that they have, that the word repentance isn't mentioned there. It doesn't talk about them mourning over their sin. They're just in a very difficult situation. It's awful, and they want to get out of it. Nevertheless, God still sends a deliverer. And this is our next character on the stage, Othniel. He's the ideal judge. Let's look at him in verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer, or you could say judge, for the people of Israel who saved them. So notice what he does. He's, he's a savior. You see that? Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now, what can we say about this character, Othniel? Well, not a whole lot, actually. You notice there's just a few verses about him, which I think is sort of the point. Because when we get to some of these other characters, these judges, they have quite colorful lives. In fact, we probably, uh, it's interesting, I, I can't see your hands right now, but if, if I were to say, start off this sermon and say, who here has heard of Samson? Probably everyone would raise their hands. And if I said, who here has heard of Othniel? Well, I don't know, two or three people would probably raise their hand, right? W isn't it ironic that the righteous 
good ideal judge has very little about him, where Samson has a rated R exploits about his life. I think that's the point. He, Othniel's character flaws don't get in the way. We're focused on God, the spirit of the Lord, what God is doing. God raised up Cushan Rishathayim, right? And then God raised up Othniel. God is sovereign over all of those things. You see, the point there, it's our focus, we're not distracted with Othniel. But what else do we know about him, though, if we just kind of study him? Well, he lived during a time of transition in Israel's history. He was around during the days of Josh, the Joshua generation, but he, he lived on to witness the next generation. It's kind of like someone middle-aged right now. Uh, you know, someone middle-aged uh, had experience and has known the, the, what they call them the greatest generation, right? The World War II generation. And they also know and have interacted with millennials, two <laughs> vastly different generations, by the way. The greatest generation, the millennials, or the, the builders, they might call them, and, and the millennials. But the point is, Othniel's life overlapped these two generations. And you could say that he was old school. You could say he was more like the grandparents' generation. Why? He carried on the footsteps of Joshua. Do, do you remember when they, uh, they hit that roadblock to conquering the land? And, Josh, and, and what does Joshua say? Caleb says, hey, look, if anyone can take this, they can have my daughter. And Othniel steps up to it, right? That's what he does. He's, he courageously led the charge, captured the city. This guy stood head and shoulders above the rest. He's tough. He's got initiative. He's a proven fighter. Not to mention, he married into the right family after he took this city. He's got a wife of impeccable credentials, the daughter of Caleb. And think about this, with Joshua dead, what better family could you belong to than Caleb's? Also, his wife, Oxa, is not a Canaanite. She's Jewish, which to us, we're like, okay, well, yeah. But remember, when, remember if we go back, go back there, do you remember the beginning of three? Remember what happens? Remember, three, six, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives and their own daughters they gave to their sons and they served their gods. Do you remember the intermarrying? It's almost like a, now a point of contrast. What does Othniel do? Othniel's the guy who does the exact opposite of that, right? He's not tainted with these things. And he was a Kenizzite who belonged to the tribe of Judah. Judah, remember the same tribe singled out for leadership at the very beginning of the book, who will go up and fight? Judah selected. So all that to say, if you're gonna pick a top bloke, a man of valor, I mean, it'd be like a no-brainer. You would point to this guy, Othniel. But that's not the point, actually. As bad a dude as Othniel probably was, bad in, in a good sense, he actually has something going for him. Something that verse 10 really shows is the key to his success. Notice verse 10. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed. I wish I could see that battle on film. And his hand prevailed over Cushan, Rishathaim. Othniel might have been a man of valor, but that's not the point. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. That's how he delivered Israel. 
He was equipped for the task because the Spirit was upon him. And these same words, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, will be picked up later in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 61 says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Othniel, if you will, performed this task as a deliverer. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, we're told, right? In verse 10. And he brought liberty to the captives. And he gave them peace. But this peace only lasted for 40 years, right? Why? Because he couldn't provide peace vertically. He could only provide peace horizontally, you see. So he only gives us a glimpse of the grand finale. He, he's, in a way, he, Othniel is like a signpost that points to a greater deliverer. But it's still a glimpse of the grand finale because one day, one day, another deliverer will come and he'll read this exact text from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he'll say, guess what? I'm it. I am this deliverer. I want, I want you to see it. So you see what I'm talking about. Go to, way to the right in your Bible, go to the Gospel of Luke as we close here. Luke chapter four. Luke four, picking up in verse 14. So let's see this deliverer who comes from the tribe of Judah in verse 14. And Jesus Notice, return in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as it was custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, so he chooses this, and what does he say? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all on the, in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Praise God. <laughs> Othniel's pretty amazing guy, but he's just a signpost. He's a type who finally points, who points forward to the greatest of all, our ultimate deliverer, the Lord Jesus. Look, you may be in this vicious cycle, friend, of sin. You might feel, you might look at Israel and go, man, I, I feel that way right now. But look, you have a great and mighty Savior. Our sin is great, but His grace is greater than our sin. Turn to Christ. Maybe you're stuck in a rut of sin and you've tried to sort of pull yourself up by the bootstraps for decades now and you don't feel like you can conquer that. 
friend, look to Christ. Turn to him. If you are heavy laden, lay your burdens on Christ who can give you rest. Let's pray. Lord, we pray even now that you would give eyes and grant faith to those who have yet to turn to you. Lord, for the rest of us that are, we feel the weight of our sin, we feel the, the, the battle. Lord, we pray that we would look to you as our great deliverer, that you would be reminded that your grace is what we need daily. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.